All right, we're starting this morning. We're starting this morning a series on the uh, 16 prophets who made it into the Old Testament with one of their writings. Uh, each week we're going to read a, this is how it's going to work, each week we're going to read a selection from a different prophet that sort of typifies his overall message. And we're calling this series Interventions because through the prophets, God intervened into the lives of real people to start and sustain a relationship with him. And he still does this today. He, he intervenes into lives to start and sustain a relationship with him. For me, that began at the age of 16. When God heard the prayers of my parents, my faithful parents, prayers for their lost, their very lost son, who at the time wanted nothing, absolutely nothing to do with God. This is the guy who fell asleep during his parents' baptism. That's how, how it worked for me. And yet, God put people, mentors, messages, and even the, my future wife in my path to help me humble myself and see my need for Jesus. And I'm so grateful. And ever since I've been walking with Jesus, although not without some difficulty, in fact, I'm very prone to wander in my relationship with him. And so God intervenes in my life to sustain our relationship. And he's very gracious to do so. He intervenes by patiently leading me at times, at other times by painfully prodding me back to that relationship. That's what he does. He's so good to do that. So when we talk about the prophets, both today and ongoing, and today's our introduction to them, you may be surprised to hear that the most important idea with respect to the prophets is relationship. Not the future, not predictions, not even prophecies as we typically think about them. In fact, did you know, some prophet fun facts here, did you know that less than 5% of the Old Testament prophetic writings were predictive of this age we live in today? Right? These were written thousands of years ago. Less than 5% were predictive of the age of Jesus, of his time and the time ongoing under the new covenant. Less than 1% of the prophetic writings pertain to an even more future age when Jesus will one day return to restore everything and make it right. Yet 100% of the prophetic writings have to do with relationship. And we're going to find this out, find out more about this this morning. So join me as I pray for our time this morning together. Father, we're so grateful for your many promises about wanting a relationship with us. Your word says a time would come when all people might know you from the least to the greatest, from those considered the bottom of the society and those considered at the top. All might know know you. Help us understand this morning the kind of unique relationship that you wish to start and sustain with us. Please help us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The joy of the Lord is my strength. We're living in the end times. He and I, we do life together. God gave me a word for you. Jesus' blood covers me. All of these, yes, yeah, someone just said, ooh, thank you, Chris. Uh, all of these phrases 
are used by Christians and churches without considering sometimes that only those of us who've been in church for a decade have any idea what we're talking about. And yet we say them. To many ears, these words sound confusing, bizarre, maybe even a little bit creepy, right? Like my friend up here expressed when I said, Jesus' blood covers me. I need to explain what I mean. Here's one more for you. Let's you and I make a covenant together. <laughs> Imagine using that, by the way, that phrase in the real world. You know, my mechanic is set to return my car keys to me, and I'm about to make my payment to him. But instead of making a payment, I say, Dave, let's you and I make a covenant together. <laughs> He's going to be, number one, confused. Number two, concerned not only for his well-being, but for the well-being of his firstborn child that I want to abduct into my, you know, comet-worshipping cult. That's what he's going to be concerned about. Like, what? who is this guy? So this morning, one of my goals is to decreepify. I'm just making up a word here. Hopefully a new word for the 2017 dictionary, Oxford Dictionary. Decreepify this word, covenant. This term, covenant. Because it's an important word. There's a word people sometimes throw out there in churches, and you have no idea what it means, and it sounds a little weird. Covenant is the kind of relationship that God enters into with his people. And actually, rather than it being religious-sounding, kind of weird, kind of creepy to the people of the ancient Near East, it was very relevant to their lives. Business relationships were forged by covenants. Neighbors made agreements by covenants. Uh, Families joined together by marriage covenants. And nations would unify by making a covenant. And so God was actually trying to communicate with people in a very real and a very down-to-earth way by saying, you know these kinds of relationships. I want a similar kind of relationship with you. And the whole purpose of the prophets is to encourage, plead, prod people back into this covenant relationship with God. And so this morning I want to ask and answer three questions with you and together. What are covenants? What is the best covenant? And how can prophets help us? This is the introduction to our series this morning. What are covenants? What is the best covenant? How can prophets help us? We're going to spend the bulk of our time on this first question. What are covenants. All right, what are covenants? Here's a definition for you. A covenant is a contract between two usually unequal parties in which one party guarantees to protect the other in exchange for unyielding loyalty and obedience. All right, bigger party says, I'm going to protect you. I'm going to take care of you. Lesser party says, I'm going to give you loyalty and obedience in return. They sign a contract. And that's a very clinical definition, I know. So I want to give us more of a feel for the uniqueness of a covenant relationship. And that brings me to the title of this morning's sermon, which is this. Covenant, more than a contract, more than just friends. More than a contract, more than just friends. And it's important we talk through this because our society is losing touch with a relationship of the kind a covenant relationship is. There's there's no sort of equivalent in our society of that kind of relationship. So I want to talk about it a little bit. First, a covenant is more than a contract. 
It's not just a formal sign-on-the-dotted-line agreement. Yeah, we've all had relationships like that, right? Business relationships stand out especially. You can entertain a client. You can do things normally reserved for friends. You can eat with that client, drink with that client, play golf with that client, attend a sporting match with that client. And yet you say, it's just business. Right? We think in our minds, this is just doing business. We even give receipts to our company that say, hey, this is just business, my round of golf. But sometimes we sense it also when we invite a boss to a, a family function or to a family and friend function. And you, the boss, arrive with a gift. And yet you both kind of know, like, this isn't normal of our relationship. Or when you feel obligated to invite someone who's in the same social circle as those you run with, and yet you're not super good friends. Or you engage in conversation with a family member, but you do so because they're family, when really you have very little to nothing in common, right? Or relationships in which both parties benefit from that relationship, but there's not a lot of affection there. There's not a lot of wanting to get to know the other person there. In effect, these are all literally, or at least de facto, contractual relationships. In the ancient Near East, when a strong nation, a weak nation, entered into a covenant, it wasn't just a contract. The party in power agreed to come to the aid of the weaker party whenever she picked up the bat phone to call, whenever she was in trouble, whenever, the smallest skirmish, the weaker party, she could pick up the phone and say, I need you, and the stronger party would come to her aid faithfully. These agreements in the ancient Near East involved the celebration, which is always accompanied by sumptuous feasts and the mingling of royal families. And by all accounts, there was real warmth when these covenants were struck together. There's a real desire for the families to truly unify and become one family. Like sometimes we see in marriages, right? We're one family now. In this case, they actually followed through. And yet, a covenant is more than just that warmth. Just that affection. A covenant is more than just friends. It's not just let's hang together, but I pledge myself and my total well-being to you. In business relationships, most of you have experienced another party's kindness, hospitality, words of warmth, gifts, and yet the experienced person knows that the relationship isn't complete until the other party signs on the dotted line, right? We've been disappointed so many times thinking, I'm going to be right, the person, the, their firm. They're going to be my client. I can just feel it. I can sense it. And then we're disappointed. Dang it. They did not sign on the dotted line. Friendships are wonderful in part because there's no obligation in the beginning. But those relationships grow over time. And there's a general knowledge that that friend will be there for you. But even with time and history with that person, there's no guarantee that there's no guarantee they're going to show up, that they're going to have their phone on. They're going to inconvenience themselves in a moment to be there for you. But a covenant is different. Covenants in the ancient Near East were put into effect by a ritual, by an external sign, a guarantee like a contract. The suzerain, which is the power party, and the vassal, which is the weaker party, would each pass between halves of animals, they would take a bull, cut it down the middle, one on one altar, one on the other, and the two parties would pass between them, which may sound kind of weird, but it was their way of saying, may the same fate, being cut in two, 
May the same fate come to me should I fail to live up to this covenant. That's serious, right? Lawyers, when you strike a deal with a client, I'm guessing you don't cut animals and pass between them as part of your ritual, right? Accountants, it's probably not part of what you do in your firm. And yet this is the kind of guarantee that a stronger party gave to a weaker party, which is why the term, which where the term cut a covenant comes from. It was a pledge that required personal sacrifice. The big picture point of all this information is this. God calls us into a relationship with him that's full of love, warmth, affection, a desire to know, and upfront certainty that he's going to be there. An upfront sign on the line, I'm willing to sacrifice myself to show you this certainty that he's going to be there for you. It's that kind of relationship. I want us to, we're going to come circle back to that idea later, but I want to talk about two types of covenants we see in the Old Testament. There's unconditional covenants and conditional covenants, like unconditional love and conditional love. Let's talk first about unconditional covenants. These are the covenants of Abraham, of David, of Noah. The best example I'm going to give us this morning is the Abrahamic covenant. So I'm going to read to you from Genesis 15, starting in verse 5. That's going to be up on the screen above us. And God brought Abraham outside, and he said, Abraham, look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then God said to Abraham, so shall your offspring be. And he, Abraham, believed the Lord, and God counted it to Abraham as righteousness. All right, I'm going to also summarize this. God summarizes this in chapter 17 of Genesis, starting in uh, verse uh, 7 here. And I, God, will establish my covenant between me and you, Abram, and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, Abram, as for you, you shall keep my covenant. You and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall circumcise in the flesh of your foreskins. It shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. So God promises two things to this man, Abraham. He's going to have a long lineage from which will come many nations. And number two, God's going to give him and his people a choice piece of property. And in return, well, he really doesn't ask much obedience in return, does he? This is really an unconditional promise, an unconditional covenant. Abraham believes, and that makes him right with God. Abraham just has to believe that it's true, believe that God is calling him to this, believe that, that God is talking to him as the real God, and God says, okay, that's what you've got to do. Abraham shows it's more than just friendship, this, this relationship, by getting circumcised. God shows it's more than just friendship by being the only party to pass between two halves of animals. We don't get to see this in Genesis 15. I'm just going to say that to you. God actually shows up and passes between the two halves of animals for both him and Abraham. So there's this sign that it's more than just a friendship. There's real commitment involved. That's an unconditional covenant. There's also in the Old Testament conditional covenants. The Adam's, Adam, God's covenant with Adam and God's covenant with Moses. The best example is the Mosaic covenant. 
God's covenant with Moses. God says to Abram, right, I will be your God. In other places, he says, you will be my people. There's just one problem, and that is the people grew disobedient. They wandered to the point where they needed specific guidelines to know how to be his people, how to live that out in their lives. And through this covenant, the Mosaic covenant, God makes specific promises. He says, people, I love you. I'm going to make these promises. Ongoing health, long life, agricultural growth. And I'm going to give you a more visible commitment. I'm going to deliver you from slavery. And I'm going to give you this land. I'm finally going to give you this land. This shows you that we're more than just friends. But he also demands specific obedience, or else his people get a curse. Death, disease, destruction, drought, dearth, danger, destruction, all these these curses that will come if they don't stay in the relationship and faithful to God in that. In other words, this covenant was conditional. There was ifs in this covenant. Now here's the rub. Neither of these covenants worked. In the history of Israel, neither type of covenant, conditional, unconditional, secured the faith and obedience of Israel. Why is that? Why not secure their faith and their love and their loyalty? Because of two different kinds of people. The stubborn and comfortable would look to the security of the unconditional covenant to give them assurance. These are the people who who completely relied on the unconditional mercy of God. They said, hey, I'm one of God's people. He's not going to forsake me. He's not going to get rid of me. I can just do what I want. I can live how I want to live. Or the way I feel is right. What they needed was the law. They needed justice in their life. But there's another kind of person, the sincere follower of God, who was crushed by his or her inability to actually follow the law successfully. Over and over again, they would fail, and they would be crushed not living up to the conditions of the contract, right? And they would go through with a fine-tooth comb and say, I failed, I failed again, and they would be crushed. All about conditional obedience of their lives. So they thought when they failed, I just need to come better. I need to be more spiritual. I need to become more disciplined. I need to go to the tabernacle more or the temple more. What they needed was freedom from guilt. That's what they needed. And friends, this is the same dilemma today for people who try to relate to God. You have your stubborn and comfortable who often say, it's all relative. God will love me no matter what. I'm a good enough person, after all. Or, I won't change because I know God loves me, so I'm just going to stay the way I am. And most of us who are in this camp need to respond to live out the law or at least see how how far short of living up to the law we actually fall. We actually fall far short of it. Others of us exalt some kind of law in our life, but we find we can hardly live up to it. To our own standards, and especially God's. And we find the world to be a harsh, judgmental, uncompromising place, and we experience failure after failure, oftentimes the same thing over and over again. And we need the promise of unconditional mercy, the invitation to approach God no matter how many times I've failed. So what I want us to see here is that this isn't some just old, dusty, Old Testament theological quandary about two types of covenants, but this is the major struggle everyday people are thinking about when it comes to God. Does God relate to me unconditionally? Is it all promise? Or does it relate to me conditionally? 
There's strings attached. Which is it? That's our problem. You know, I once heard uh, Sinclair Ferguson, a pastor and theologian I really respect, I heard him say this once, I was paraphrasing. He said that he basically saw two kinds of people in pastoral counseling, and he would counsel them, the overly comforted and the significantly discomforted. So he said his job in a pastoral relationship with people was simple. Comfort the discomforted and discomfort the comforted. Comfort the discomforted, discomfort the comforted. At some point I'm going to mess that up as I say it this morning. And that's exactly what God does in his very best covenant. His very best covenant. Now, what is that best covenant? Turn with me, if you would, if you have a Bible nearby, to Jeremiah 31. I know it took us a long time to get to that. Jeremiah 31, page 558, if you're using one of the Bibles we provided. And we're going to find out what is the best covenant. It's going to be up on the screen as well if you want to read it with me. Again, page 558 if you're using one of our Bibles. Jeremiah 31, starting in verse 31, reading through verse 34. Again, here's one of our prophets speaking about the end of the sixth, uh, beginning of the uh, end of the seventh, beginning of the sixth century. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant they broke. He's talking there about what? The conditional covenant made with Moses. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write my law on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. There's the unconditional covenant, right? And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor, each one saying to his brother, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, their sin, and I will remember their sin no more. Wonderful promise. So in the past, God has fulfilled his end of the covenant. The Mosaic covenant, which is explicitly listed here, God fulfilled that end. The Abraham covenant, the unconditional covenant, is listed here as well. It's referred to here, I will be your God, you will be my people. Through Jesus Christ, God fulfills his end of the covenant and our end of the covenant. That is the beauty and the glory of the coming of Jesus Christ for us. That unconditional and conditional problem is solved. We see that, right? We see the concern about the law still in verse 33. God doesn't say, away with the law. I'm just going to forgive everyone. Don't worry about it. Instead, what happens is Jesus comes and he lives out the whole law, dies in our place. And then he sends the Holy Spirit to write that law on our hearts, as it says here in verse 33. He enables us to carry out the law, to do it freely because the weight of guilt is lifted. The punishment for failing has finally been lifted when we can't live it out. This is why under the new covenant, it's not called doing the law, but bearing fruit. It's a natural thing. It comes from the vibrancy of a relationship with Jesus and pours out of us. The law becomes fruit of the Spirit, love, Patience, goodness, kindness, self-control, all those fruits listed in Galatians 5. That's what starts to happen. That law on our heart's fruit comes from knowing God intimately and an unhindered relationship with him. Look at that in verse 34. Isn't that so beautiful? No longer should people teach one another. Rather, they shall all know me. 
from the least to the greatest, declares the Lord. I'll forgive their iniquity, remember their sin no more. Every covenant is sealed with a contract, right? We just learned that a second ago. Sealed with a sign, a ritual. It's not only love, affection, desire to know the person, but that upfront certainty, this for sure reliability that this person will be there for me. So what is the sign in this very best covenant that God makes through Jesus Christ and is predicted long ago here by Jeremiah? That sign of this new relationship, this new covenant, is the cross of Jesus Christ. It's the cross of Jesus. When Jesus was a young boy, a priest named Simeon prophesied over him, spoke a word about him that would come true. And it was this. He said, this boy is appointed for a sign. A sign that will cause the the rise and the fall of many in Israel. That sign was going to be the cross. He was told that before he was one years old. About 30 years later, he endured it. The cross of Jesus Christ. It does two things for us. Two things really to us. It discomforts and it comforts. Right? So God is continuing this covenant relationship. And now he's given us this central focus in our life to discomfort us when we need it, comfort us when we need it. The cross discomforts the comfortable. It shows us that we are guilty to the point where God had to pay the ultimate price. The cross also comforts the discomforted. Right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall never perish but have eternal life. There's comfort in the cross of Jesus. Ultimately, there's comfort. Let me give you a personal example of the, the brilliance of this new covenant relationship sealed by the cross of Jesus Christ. This past week, I had someone close to me give me information. They gave me a piece of information, and with that information, asked me to make a hard decision. I made the decision, but the information they gave me turned out to be dead wrong, such that it made me look foolish to others I cared about, and, and I let them down. I ended up letting people down. I was at first really frustrated about this, frustrated about this wrong piece of information. <laughs> I was sad about it. I was paralyzed by it. I, I, I couldn't think about other things. My mind was fixated on it. I got stuck. And I was like, I'm just going to be stuck here. And then I got stubborn. Like, I should be mad. I should be frustrated. Dang it. And God challenged me very simply. Ryan, look at the cross. Really look at the cross. And in my mind's eye, picturing Jesus hanging there, I was reminded of the reason he hung there, my sin. I was reminded of the ultimate cost that the God-man Jesus had to pay his own life and enduring the wrath of God, the punishment for sin. As I looked there, to be honest, at first I found a defensive. God, how am I wrong? How am I wrong here? I'm looking at the cross. I know I'm sinful. How am I wrong? It was like, it was like God was was pointing a finger at me, like going up to me and being like this. That's what the cross was doing to me, right? Over and over again. And I was like, God, I don't understand. But as he kept doing that and kept discomforting me, I realized, oh yeah, I am wrong. That, that 
decision I said I'd pray about, and I maybe offered up a couple words at most, that decision I said that I would wake up early and pray about and seek you first, Lord, I sought a lot of other things before I sought you about that decision. And I started to realize ultimately that decision was my responsibility, and thankfully, cross that discomforted me also comforted me, right? Because that same cross that said, Ryan, you're guilty, you're a sinner, also says, you're forgiven, you're reconciled, you're restored, I love you and accept you still. And of course, that made my heart more tender towards the person who gave me the wrong information, made my heart more peaceful towards them, made me want to reach out to them, started to be free from my sin and the guilt and the stubbornness that got caught up inside of me, it comforted me, the cross did. The cross of Jesus drives us back into right relationship with him, using both discomfort and comfort. Now, what does that have to do with the prophets? How, how can the prophets help us? How does this all relate? Here it is in a nutshell this morning as we introduce this series. Like the cross that they foreshadow, the prophets drive us back to relationship by discomforting the comfortable and comforting the discomforted. They foreshadow what the cross is ultimately meant to do, which is to speak a word of truth that makes us uncomfortable. We are guilty, and we need God. But they also speak a word of comfort to us. But God wants you back in this relationship. He wants to receive you again if you just return to him. Now, that's a very clinical, kind of cold, (laughs) in a nutshell, and very long. He's an even shorter way to put it. The prophets poke and they hug. God uses the prophets to poke and hug. He uses them to poke, right? Come back, come back, come back. And he uses them to hug. Now soon James is going to get a restraining order against me. But uh, we'll talk about that later, hopefully. Forgive me. But that's what the prophets do. And that's what we're going to see. And some prophets have a message that pokes. Messages of justice, cleansing, repentance, and warning. And as we read their message on Sundays, it's going to feel like a finger poking right at our chest. It's going to be uncomfortable. But it's meant to drive us back to God. Other prophets have primarily messages of hope, of promise, of grace, of escape, of rebuilding, and of love. So that it will feel like a warm embrace because God is calling us and inviting us back into that relationship with him. So what I think God wants us to see is that the prophets foreshadow, give a little hint, a little taste of how the cross functions in our lives, discomforting us with our sin when we're stubborn and comfortable, comforting us when we need assurance because we're discomforted, comforting us when we need to remember we are forgiven from that guilt that haunts us. That's what we're supposed to see. What I think God wants us to do is to prepare our hearts every Sunday for that. Every week as we come to worship together, Each Sunday, what I'll do is I'll post on our website, on the Sermon Archive part of our website, the prophet and scripture reference for the following week so you can read ahead and prepare your hearts in that way. But also, as you drive here on Sunday mornings in your car, I'm going to encourage you, ask the Holy Spirit to help you grow sensitive to how he wants to get your attention, how he might be intervening in your life to drive you back into a right relationship with him. Let's begin now by asking him that together. Let's pray together. God, Father, we believe that you want to intervene in our lives, to to start 
and sustain a relationship with you. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for the cross, Jesus, that, that made us, that allowed us to have a relationship with you. We thank you for the cross, your, your for certain, forever sign that you want a relationship with us. Thank you for using the cross to make us uncomfortable with our sin, with the things that we put above you as number one in our lives. Thank you also because in that same cross, you remind us that you want to comfort, you want to heal, you want to restore us again. So Father, we we just ask blessing on these coming months as we read the prophets whose whole job is to remind your people prod your people back into a covenant relationship. Use their messages to both discomfort us when we need it, comfort us to revive our relationship with you, to revive our church, to even use our lives to revive this island. We ask this all boldly and expectantly in Jesus' name. Amen.